People who live in Dubai know what it's like to be thirsty. I don't know if you noticed this past week, but uh, I saw that it was going to go up to 44 degrees one particular day. It's not unusual for us, is it? You all know that feeling in the afternoon, that wilting fatigue that comes over you, and maybe even a headache that sets in until you realize, I haven't had enough water today. And so you go and you get a big, tall glass of water. Maybe your preference is ice cold water. Maybe your preference is room temperature water. But whichever one it is, you start to drink it down and you can actually feel the water start to saturate the cells of your body. I can feel it move throughout my body sometimes when I'm so thirsty. I guess it shouldn't surprise us then to know that 60% of our bodies are made up of water. 60%. And if we go without water for too long, we die. So it's no wonder that thirst is one way that Jesus described what all humans need and can only find in Him, a saving, sustaining relationship with God. Today we're going to read about Jesus' amazing promise that believing in Him creates a river of living water that flows continuously from inside a person who repents and believes in Him because of the life-giving Spirit that comes to dwell in Him. He makes this plain to all the people in His hearing, and yet the opinions are divided about who He actually is. You may remember that different sections of John's Gospel take place during several of the different Jewish feasts or festivals that God commanded the Jews to celebrate throughout the year. And so, if you'll think back, chapter 2, which was the wedding at Cana, was during the Passover. Chapter 5 is an unnamed feast. Chapter 6 is the Passover again, and now we're in chapter 7, we're completing it today, and it takes place during what's called the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths. And of course, that was a feast that God had commanded the Israelites to celebrate every year, commemorating the season when God had 1,400 years before Jesus' lifetime rescued the Israelites from Egypt, brought them out into the desert on the way to the promised land, and there in the desert they lived in booths or shelters that they built with palm branches and other things they found there in the desert. It was a time when God led them by a pillar of fire at night, and he provided miraculous water from a rock to quench their thirsts. Now, at the beginning of chapter 7, Jesus has gone up to the feast secretly, but then he appears in the temple courts teaching in the middle of the feast time, and the crowds are divided in what they think about him, but the leaders mostly hated him so much that they wanted to kill him. Jesus fearlessly tells them, all of the leaders, that they are breaking God's law regularly, 
they are misjudging God's law, and so they're misjudging him, the lawgiver. And he tells all the people, you all don't know God. And so you don't know me, truly. Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. And we're going to finish up the chapter today. We're going to begin in verse 32. John chapter 7, beginning with verse 32. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like one, you can raise your hand and one of our ushers will bring you a Bible. If you want to raise your hand, feel free to do that. Um, that would be our gift to you if you need a Bible. We'd love for you to have that. John chapter 7, beginning with verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And, and where I am, you cannot come. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring them? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Let's ask the Lord to help us as we study his word today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you cause it to be that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts together would be pleasing in your sight. Oh Lord, you're our rock and you are our redeemer. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. The big idea from this passage is that Jesus satisfies our deepest thirsts 
by giving us the Spirit. Jesus satisfies our deepest thirsts by giving us His Spirit, and yet, opinions are divided. There's two points to the sermon outline this afternoon. If you're taking notes, this might help you. It's thirst-quenching spirit and divided opinions. Those are the first, those are the two points. Thirst-quenching spirit and divided opinions. And the first point goes with verses 32 through 39. Thirst-quenching spirit. You see the Pharisees hear the crowd grumbling and muttering about Jesus and his shocking claims about himself, and they decide it's time to take action on their desire to kill him. But if you're going to kill him, the first thing that you have to do is arrest him. You have to take him into custody. And so they dispatch the temple officers to take him into custody. These would be like really important temple security guards that kept order in the temple courts. But Jesus then continues speaking to the crowds, and for the first time he announces that he will only be with them a little longer and that he's returning to the Father who sent him. He says there in verse 33, you can see, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. Now, we've heard Jesus mention that his hour hadn't come yet, which is a bit mysterious, although we know it points to his crucifixion and resurrection. But John's not revealed Jesus' teaching about what would happen at that hour just yet. And this is the first reference in John's gospel to Jesus' plan to return to the Father who sent him. He's been speaking about the fact that the Father sent him. Now he's saying, I'm going to go back to him. It's a vague, vague reference to the ascension of Christ. Jesus was in heaven, glorified with the Father from eternity past. He's always existed. He never had a beginning. And now, here on earth, His glory is veiled or hidden by His human nature, the human nature that He took on when He was born to the Virgin Mary. But it won't be hidden forever. The Father's plan is to have Him return to His side and be glorified once again. And, of course, we're going to hear Jesus speak a lot more about that as we get closer to the end of John. Jesus also makes it clear here to the people who are listening in general that they're not going to be able to go with him even though they seek him. Verse 34, he says, you'll seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come, he tells them. So once again, his true statements are revelations from God, but the Jews misunderstand him, don't they? They're from the world and he's from heaven. They're from below, and he's from above. So verses 35 through 36 describe their conversations with one another in the crowd, trying to figure out what Jesus means. They say, where's he going to go that we won't be able to find him? They're discussing amongst themselves. Could he mean that he's going to be traveling to these Greek regions of the Mediterranean world where Jews were scattered and living there outside of Israel, and he's going to teach the Greeks there? the scattered Jews who were scattered because of different conquests of Israel throughout the centuries prior to Jesus, 
uh, they were called the dispersion because they were dispersed. They were scattered. So they think maybe he's speaking about going to teach them. What does he mean, they're wondering. Now there's some irony here at the fact that the Jews mention Jesus going to teach the Greeks because it's going to be a group of Greeks who come to Jerusalem and seek Jesus in chapter 11 of John, which triggers Jesus saying, my hour has now come. And that's when he begins to go to the cross. Now Jesus, isn't, is, he, Jesus is telling the Jews that they can't go with him of course, into the presence of God because they're sinful and God is holy. Only Jesus will ascend to the right hand of God the Father, and they can't go. Now, Jesus' death and resurrection will eventually enable some to go, whoever believes in him, and he's going to tell his disciples that later. But Jesus' statement here about their inability to go with him and not find him is prophetic and it points us to a spiritual principle that's still true for you and me today. God's word in the Old Testament says in many places that if people resist God's warnings, resist God's revelation of himself to them, and they ignore it too long, then they will eventually not be able to find him. They will seek him and look for him and not find him. Proverbs 1, verse 28, the first chapter of Proverbs is about wisdom calling out, come and get wisdom. And in the verse 28, it says, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. And there's passages in the book of Amos and Hosea and scattered all throughout the Old Testament, which echo the same idea. It can be too late for people to turn to Christ in faith. Now, this isn't just true for the Israelites, it's true for you and I as well. Oftentimes, people think that they can just decide when to become a Christian anytime they want. Sometimes the thinking goes a little bit like this. They say, I see that Jesus is a Savior. I see that He came and He did miracles and He promises forgiveness for sins. I see that the Scriptures say that He rose from the dead. I don't have a problem with that. But I just don't want to follow him right now. I'll wait until I've accomplished some of the dreams that I have for my own life. Some of the things that I want to build up as accomplishments in my life. When I'm ready, maybe when I'm older, I'll give my life to Christ then. Or maybe when I'm in a big crisis or in a big time of need, that's when I'll turn to Jesus and he'll be there for me. I'll wait and give my life to Christ later. But you can't. And you won't turn to Christ in true faith simply at the time of your own choosing. If you're not a Christian, I, I say this as a warning because I love you. We love you as a church. And we want you to know the truth of what Jesus says here. Don't think that you can put off giving your life to Christ and just do it anytime you want. If you sense your need for Him now, turn to Him in faith now. The song we sang together earlier says it best. 
It says, Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry, and that means wait, postpone, delay. If you delay till you're better, you will never come at all. It's spiritually dangerous to continue resisting the call of Christ and His offer of forgiveness and eternal life. Still here in the last few verses of the first section of our passage, Jesus continues to offer Himself and the life-giving Spirit to whoever believes in Him. Every day during the Feast of Booths, the priests would walk in a procession to the Pool of Siloam where they would draw water out and then they would again process towards the temple with all the people congregating around them, cheering and singing Psalm 113 through 118 out loud, rejoicing together. And then when the priests got to the temple and to the altar, they would pour out the water as a, an offering, symbolically displaying what God had done for them and water from the rock and providing water in the desert for them. It was a joyful, celebratory ritual, and the last day of the Feast of Booths would have been accompanied by the greatest shouts of jubilation and loud singing. There was a crescendo over the week as they got to that last day, and on the last day, they would circle the altar seven times before they poured out that libation. It was on that day that Jesus stands and makes this stunning declaration that we see in verses 37 and 38. Look at those verses again. Oh, we should read them over and over again. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus is declaring that if you believe in Him, your thirsts will be quenched by the Holy Spirit whom He and the Father was to send after His crucifixion and resurrection and ascension. Now, there is no single place in the Old Testament where there is a direct quote of what Jesus is saying here in verse 38. It seems that he's summarizing really much of what the Old Testament says about God satisfying the thirsts of our hearts. And many of those texts from the Old Testament would have been read during the Feast of Booths amongst the people. There's the miraculous water that God provided from a rock in Exodus 17. And of course, there's the pure water that flows like a river from the temple in that great prophetic vision that Ezekiel had towards the end of his recording book. Perhaps the one that Jesus is drawing on most is from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 9, and verse 20 says, you gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. So Jesus is declaring that He Himself is the fulfillment of all that the Feast of Booths and its joyful water-drawing ritual were pointing to. He's arrived. He's come. Why celebrate with cups and buckets of water when the one who offers the river 
of living water flowing out of each and every person who believes in Him is right there in their midst. Now what's true for all of us is that we have thirsts of our heart as well. We have hungers inside us that we crave to have fed. These are deep longings, many of them, that God created us to have. It's not a result of the fall and the presence of sin that creates the thirsts of our heart. Yes, sin does create thirst, and that is a thirst that Christ quenches. But there are also these deep down longings that we have. Adam and Eve had those thirsts as well, even before chapter 3 when they sinned. But in the beginning, they looked to God Himself to satisfy those thirsts through His very presence and through the good gifts that He gave there in the garden. And God means for us to have those needs met in Him and in His ways. Sin, on the other hand, is seeking to satisfy those thirsts in someone or something other than God or other than God's good gifts experienced as He's designed them to be experienced. So think for just a moment. You have a thirst for love. Every single one of you wants to be loved. I want to be loved. But in our rebellion against God, we seek to satisfy that thirst for love by ignoring God's love for us, the most satisfying love, and instead, we try to manipulate other people into giving us love by various means. And yet, in Christ, in Christ, we have the greatest love. We have a, a love that comes unconditionally, in a sense. It comes to us apart from all the wickedness that we've committed in our lives. It comes to us and it forgives us our sin. It's unmerited by us. And we're adopted into His family. That's the kind of love we have. We're adopted into His family where we can call the Father Abba, Abba Father. That's what we have in Christ. Love to quench that thirst for love. Or think about importance or a hunger for significance that we have. We want that. We desire that. We thirst for that. But in sin, we reject what God says about us, that we're significant because we're made in His image and we're meant to be His representatives on this earth, to have dominion on the earth and spread the knowledge of Him on the earth. That should be the thing that gives us our significance. And instead, we seek worldly importance through worldly ways. When instead in the gospel, the good news of Jesus, we can find significance in Him. Instead of climbing the corporate ladder to be significant or drawing attention to ourselves in our circle of friends through foolish and sinful actions or words that boast and brag and put others down, Jesus says, you are not worthy, but you're of great worth to me. Or think about pleasure. We all have a desire for pleasure. 
pleasure isn't wrong. God created a world that is full of pleasures for us to enjoy. That's a thirst that we have. But we so often seek to satisfy that thirst in sinful ways. We, we might ignore responsibilities for work that we have, good work that God's given us. And instead, we're idle and we simply and only seek comfort day in and day out. Or maybe we look for pleasure in sexual experiences outside of God's good design for sexual pleasure. And yet in the gospel, in the gospel we find the greatest pleasure. God promises us pleasures at His right hand, it, the scriptures say. Contentment, joy, pleasures that don't enslave us like the pleasures that sin brings, the pleasures of God that give life and freedom. That's what Christ offers us. Have you thought carefully about what thirsts of the heart you have and, and how you're seeking to satisfy those thirsts? Jesus promises to meet the thirsts of your heart Himself and He does it by sending us his spirit to live in us when we repent and believe in him. Rivers of living water flow from the heart of the believer. Why? Not because we in ourselves can generate rivers of living water. No, no. It's because Christ comes and dwells in us by his spirit. Jesus is in us. In chapter 14 of his gospel, he'll tell us that he and the father will come and make his home with us. That's how the rivers of living water flow from us and are generated. Of course, brothers and sisters, this is good news for thirsty sinners. It's, it's like a river of living water that is bursting its banks. It's spilling over. And there's enough to share. Not only does Christ's death and resurrection pay the penalty for all the sinful ways that we sought to quench our thirsts in life, but... He promises to satisfy those thirsts from now, in part, and eventually in eternity, completely. The good news goes beyond the forgiveness of sin. God literally gives us Himself. It's the reason why John Piper wrote a book, The Gospel is God. God is the Gospel. We get God in the Gospel. He literally gives Himself to us. In Him and His ways, we discover the love and the significance and the pleasure that we so desperately want and long for. Christians experience it now in part through our union with Christ and the Spirit. In part, of course, because we still battle with a sinful nature that's resident in our bodies day in and day out. But the sure hope of the gospel is that we'll know it fully and without temptation and without any sin when we're glorified in his presence. Oh, that's going to be a good day. Brothers and sisters, this isn't just a message for non-Christians to hear. Growing as a Christian involves discovering the ways that we're continuing to try and satisfy these thirsts of our heart in sinful ways and learning to have them rather quenched in Christ and through His good gifts experienced in His ways. 
Think, for example, about two things in our lives that we need to learn how to enjoy in God's ways. One of them is food. Food is a good gift from the Lord, and we're meant to enjoy it. Scripture is filled with urgings for us to enjoy eating and drinking as a gift from God. Heaven is portrayed as a banqueting table that we'll be sitting at and enjoying. But sometimes the gift of food becomes ultimate. Food becomes our way of coping with stress or our way of escaping to mouth-watering pleasures without any hint of it pointing to the satisfaction that we find in God. And in that case, food has become an idol. Or it could be a desire for sexual intimacy and pleasure That can become an idol in the same way. In fact, the world is constantly telling us that sexual pleasure will quench all of the thirsts of our heart. That's the message we hear when we open up our phones and turn on the television, go to the internet so often. But Satan, Satan always overpromises and (laughs) underdelivers. In fact, he promises what Christ offers. And what he delivers is slavery instead, not freedom. What Satan and sin offers only makes us more thirsty. With sin, it's like we're drinking salt water rather than fresh water. It's no wonder that in Revelation twenty-two seventeen, one of the last few verses of the entire Bible, Christ is there speaking to John, the Apostle John, the very one who wrote this gospel. And he says, Spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Augustine said, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless, and I might add, thirsty, until it finds Rest and satisfaction in thee. Horatius Bonar was a famous hymn writer, and he wrote one particular verse in a hymn that goes like this. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Behold, I freely give the living water, thirsty one, stoop down and drink and live. I came to Jesus and I drank of that life-giving stream, My thirst was quenched, my soul revived, and now I live in him. What an incredible promise that Christ is making here. Brothers and sisters, have you experienced the thirst-quenching presence of knowing Christ and his indwelling spirit? I know you have. And I urge you to grow in drinking ever more deeply from that river of living water this flowing out of your heart because Christ came to dwell there. Now, despite this amazing promise, the response to Jesus' gracious offer of the live of the life-giving spirit, people remain confused and divided in their opinions about Jesus. And so in verses 40 through 52, we see the variety of divided opinions. That's the second point this afternoon, divided opinions. Jesus' teaching and promises are so stunning that some people are beginning to believe. And so it says in verse 40, there are some who say, 
this really is the prophet. And of course, they're thinking of Moses' promise in Deuteronomy 18 that God would one day raise up a prophet like himself. And they're right. They're right. Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophecy. And there were others who said, this is the Christ. And they're right too. Jesus is actually the fulfillment of both of those promises. Of course, we can call this belief in these people who say these things but only time would tell whether this is the kind of belief that will eventually embrace the prophet and the Messiah who would suffer and be crucified and rise again to take away the sins of the world. Now, it's one thing to believe that Jesus fulfills the prophecies. It's another to put your trust in Him as the Savior who saves us from sin and death. True belief involves both a factual component and a personal component, a factual part and a personal part. The factual part means admitting that what Jesus says is true and that He is who He and the Scriptures claim Him to be, but that's not enough. The personal part of true belief involves a personal expression of love and submission and worship of Jesus. And so, for example, there was the disciple Thomas, who's often called Doubting Thomas, who expressed that personal part of true belief when after his resurrection, when he was doubting that Jesus had truly been resurrected from the dead, Jesus appeared before he and all the other disciples in a room and showed Thomas the wounds on his hands and in his side, and Thomas declared, my Lord and my God. He was worshiping. He was submitting to Jesus. He wasn't just agreeing factually. The factual involves saying He is Lord and God and the personal means being able to say He is my Lord and my God. Have you come to the point of true belief in Jesus? Can you say to the Lord Himself and testify in the church? come to us and want to join the church and so perhaps be baptized and declare to not only us but to the world and to society in general, He is my Lord and He is my God. Only with both parts of belief does a person demonstrate true belief, saving faith. Some were confessing the truth about Jesus, but others remained confused and ignorant and the rest of verses 41 and 42 recount that some people were arguing that since Jesus came from Galilee, of course, he probably had a Galilean accent, that he couldn't be the Christ because Christ would be a descendant of King David and come from Bethlehem. And of course, they were right. Micah chapter 5, which Thelma read to us earlier, predicts that. It's the prophecy about, oh, Bethlehem Ephrathah the one who would come forth and be the shepherd for God's people. But where they were wrong and ignorant was that they thought that he had been born in Galilee. In fact, he was born in Bethlehem, and his father was from the line of David. They didn't know about him because they didn't ask. They didn't seek out the real answer to the question. Don't let ignorance be the reason that you turn away from Jesus. Too many people assume 
that they know enough about Jesus to make a judgment about his claims when they've never made a serious attempt to get the answers in Scripture. They might be depending on education in a religious school where they were taught some parts of the Bible. Or maybe they watched a National Geographic special on Jesus and they feel like that's enough. They're depending on false teaching, perhaps, that's scattered all over the Internet, and there's plenty of that. As I've urged before, friends, get your hands on a Bible and read through the four Gospels, the authorized biographies of Jesus. Keep coming back to Covenant Hope Church throughout the rest of 2022 and into 2023, and we'll completely go through the Gospel of John. And you'll know for yourself what Jesus said. Our Muslim friends often teach that the idea of Jesus being the Messiah and God in human flesh was an idea that developed centuries after Jesus' life. But it's simply not true. Why else would Thomas say, my Lord and my God? And John's gospel was the last gospel to be written, and it was written when people who had heard Jesus teach and seen his miracles were still alive. One of the reasons that we study through entire books of the Bible in our sermon series here at Covenant Hope Church is to make sure that as a church we're exposing ourselves to all of God's word. All of it is useful for us as we grow in the love and knowledge of God. We want to be well-informed and not ignorant about God's revelation to us. The more good expositional preaching that you sit under, the more your knowledge of all that God's Word teaches is going to grow. You'll take it in. Think about it throughout the week. Pray over it when you go for a devotional or a quiet time. And God's Spirit will cause it to be lodged in your heart and your mind. Ignorance will be replaced with true biblical knowledge. Believe the gospel accounts and not the false rumors about Jesus. It's spelled out for us here in verse 43 that there was division among the people. Division was even forming amongst the religious leaders, then it begins to tell us, most of whom who wanted to kill him. And so verses 45 through 52 describe what happened behind the scenes as those officers of the temple who were sent to arrest Jesus back up in verse 32 now return to the chief priests and they report in. Only they don't have Jesus in custody. They come back empty-handed. And the primary reason that they didn't arrest him is because it wasn't the time appointed by God for him to be arrested. God is in control. But the way that God orchestrated the delay in arresting Jesus was by causing the officers to be so amazed by Jesus' teaching that they simply couldn't bring themselves to arrest him. No one has ever spoken like this man, they say. But the leaders are more convinced than ever. Jesus is deceiving the people, and any people in the crowd who think highly of him are simply wicked sinners whom they declare to be accursed. They don't even know the law. Still, Nicodemus, the Pharisee who visited Jesus in the night back in chapter 3, he begins to stick up for Jesus. This isn't the last time that we'll see Nicodemus reappear in the Gospel of John. But here, 
we remember that, Jesus, that Nicodemus has spent one-on-one time with Jesus. And his mind seems to be changing. In verse 51, he begs his leader friends to judge Jesus by hearing him out and learning from him. And Jesus has already spoken against them earlier in this chapter. And now they angrily reply to Nicodemus that the scriptures say that no prophet is going to arise at Galilee. Are you from Galilee too? Even in that, of course, they're wrong. 2 Kings chapter 14 speaks about a prophet named Jonah from Galilee. In fact, their rejection of Jesus appears to be based more on prejudice against a man who was from a part of the country that they had no respect for rather than being truly based on the Scriptures. But all of this only goes to show that they don't believe in Jesus because they don't want to believe in Jesus. Jesus' crystal clear promise that He's going to leave to return to the Father and then send the thirst-quenching Spirit to whoever believes in Him is contrasted with the divided opinions about Him among the crowds and the leaders. And John's True statements, then, we can think back to in chapter 1 should be ringing in our ears. Do you remember them? He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children of God have the life of God bursting forth from them like a river of life. We have access to the water of the Spirit which satisfies every thirst that we have. And today, through this invitation, which still stands, some some are coming to Him to drink these waters of living water. Today, in different places all around the world, literally, people will turn in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. People will be born again all around this planet today because this gospel is being preached. While others turn away out of willful ignorance and an unwillingness to believe. What about you? Let's turn to him in prayer now. Heavenly Father, we praise you. We praise you that you sent Jesus into the world. We praise you that you brought him back to yourself and that he's glorified now at your right hand. We praise you that you've sent the Spirit who dwells in us, who've repented and believed in you. That river of life, that river of living waters is flowing out of us. Oh, we praise you for this gift of salvation and sustenance, Lord. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. The last song that we're singing today speaks about God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit. It's on page 14, if you'll turn with me in your bulletins. About the Spirit in the third verse, it says, All praise to Him whose power imparts the love of God within our hearts, the spirit of all truth and peace, the fount of joy and holiness. Let's stand and sing together. Please stand with me.